When it comes to discussing our bodies, we often get a little uncomfortable. Women's health issues are often seen as off-limits, taboo topics we just don't talk about. It's time for that to change. Let's talk. Welcome to the Brave Mama podcast, where we are going to do exactly that. Discuss everything from periods to pregnancy, motherhood to menopause. No topic is off-limits. Join Stephanie Thompson, the brave mama and author of The Day My Vagina Broke, as she asks other brave women about their personal health challenges and triumphs. You will learn, laugh and cry as Stephanie finds out everything you wanted to know but were too afraid or embarrassed to ask. So, grab a cuppa and enjoy. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Lowdown with Brave Mama. I am your host, Steph Thompson. Today we are sitting down with Dr. Elizabeth Skinner, who is a midwife, a mum and a researcher. She interviewed over 40 women and men, which were the catalyst for the creation of the Australasian Birth Drama Association. Liz's vision for better health literacy is so inspiring for women right now, but also to our future women. Today I've grabbed a cup of Madame Flavor's English Brekkie. It's just been always a go-to favourite of mine because I can drink it all day long. Just as much as I could sit and listen to Liz talk about women's health all day long. And as we are getting closer to the end of season one, there are four episodes left after this one. We would love for your feedback. We need to know what you want in season two. We've got some ideas. We've already got some people, amazing women lined up. But if you let us know who you think you'd like to hear from, send us a message on Instagram at bravemama, a direct message, or you can send an email at stephanie at bravemama.com. Hi, Liz. It's so lovely to have you on the show today. Thank you for coming on and chatting with us. Hi, Steph. It's great to be here and and work with you and and hear all your great um, questions. (laughs) Um, Hope I can help. (laughs) I think you will. Actually, I know you will. So let's kick off. So tell us, Liz, um, who was Elizabeth Skinner? Sorry, Dr. Elizabeth Skinner, I'd like to add, before um, becoming a mum? Before becoming a mum, she was um, an intensive care nurse who worked in um, Melbourne, St Vincent's, London, ICU, and Sydney with Victor Chang. Oh, wow. <laughs> so she was, she was um, um, yeah, working in trauma, um, cardiothoracic intensive care, and that was the life that she ended up thinking she would have. Yeah, wow, Victor uh, Chang, that's amazing. Yeah, um it was um it was he was a great inspiration to me, a great a, a great man. His whole team in fact really impacted on me. Um mm-hmm. and showed me that you could change things and you could always think outside the square and I think my research and working with women has been heavily impacted by Victor Chang and it's very sad that we've lost him. Yes. Uh, um, and all his innovative methods. So I think that I was very blessed in the fact that I was able to uh, work with these, the, well, not only Victor, because in London I worked with another 
team that was equally as good yes. and in Melbourne, St Vincent's. So, yeah, innovation. That's brilliant. What a legacy. That's a so legacy. good. So when, um, obviously, you are a mom, would you mind sharing with us what your birthing experiences were like? Okay. Um, I, have, I have two beautiful boys. Um, my first delivery was um, awful. It was a, a traumatic delivery. Mm-hmm. Um, I had worked in, after I worked in cardiothoracic, I ended up working in maternity and doing my midwifery certificate because um, my mother got very sick and I ended up doing that in Sydney. Um, it wasn't particularly the direction I wanted to take in my life, but I saw a lot of really terrible deliveries. Okay. Um, and at that point, just to answer a bit of your last question, I probably didn't add to, I, I really thought way back then that I wanted to change things, yeah. having worked with a great team like Victor Chang. So then when I went to have a baby myself, um, I didn't expect everything to go completely wrong, and it did. Okay, <laughs> of course. I mean, it, yeah. It went um, terribly wrong. Okay. Um, I think I, um, I wasn't working in maternity at the time. I was teaching, teaching nurses, which is yep. another passion of mine and which is what I'm doing now. And I had high ideals of okay. um, the birthing process. I decided to go to a birth centre in a major Sydney hospital that yep. had um, a neonatal intensive care, but um, the birthing centre was not to be. There was um, a lot of... Um, yeah, a, a lot of issues. My baby was too large. Okay. And I ended up in labor ward and we nearly lost our first son and oh. I got severe birth injuries. Right. And so your um, your plan or your ideal birth was obviously to have a vaginal birth at the birthing centre. And when things didn't happen, so then you went to, did they have to transport you to the hospital while you were in labour? No, I was in the same hospital. as in okay. um, a, a right, big right. major hospital in, in Sydney. Okay. Um, they just transported me to the, the labour ward. Sure. But it was the walk of shame because um, in the, oh. uh, even then, um, if you didn't make it in, um, the labour ward staff didn't like the birth centre staff. Oh. And the birth centre staff were very um, suspicious of the labour ward. So I was sort of the jam in the sandwich and I ended up in the labour ward. Um, and, um, yeah, having seen some pretty terrible deliveries, I thought, this is it, I'm, I'm going to be one of those statistics. Yeah. Wow. Um, and I was worried about that. But, yes, and that's exactly what happened. Um, the day was um, very busy. The ward um, labor ward um, was unable to send mothers to have cesarean sections if I had known straight away I would have um, I was having this huge baby I was a private patient yes um, I would have asked for a cesarean section wow yeah it's so, um, and my life would have been completely different so that I mean hearing that and obviously you had birthed your son prior to me in 2015 to know that that has happened historically, I mean, to know that, that you know, this type of birthing uh, injuries and birth trauma happened when I, even when I gave birth, was new to me. I never knew that this happened. And then now... To yes, that's right. I think, you, I think as women, we, um, we have high ideals and somehow the, 
I tend to think there's a little bit too much emphasis on the natural birthing method and that all women um, deliver differently. Yes, yes. And to know that it's actually been happening for generations is a little bit alarming, isn't it, really? Well, it's... um, this was a great interest of mine. It's, inter- uh, it's good that you're bringing it up. When I was doing my PhD, I looked into the history of this and, mm. yes, the, the stories were um, hideous. But um, once again, women are very, very brave and, um, uh, you know, hundreds of, of years ago it's, it's hard to often get transcripts. But, um, mm. yes, I got some, yeah, the, the women who suffered in silence was the the common problem. And yeah. I think that's where you're coming from, Steph. Yeah, I do. I yeah, absolutely. Um was just out of curiosity, was your second birth um I don't want to say better, better. but it was a was yes. it a different experience for you? No, it was much better. Um I miraculously um I I didn't I think I definitely had um, some distress after having Alex because, you know, we nearly lost him. Mm. Um, I, I delayed having um, any more babies. But, um, yeah, four years later um, I had a vaginal delivery. and um, But I had prolapses. In between. And um, in between. Um, and the doctor... Um, was very very gentle and very kind this time it was a different hospital okay um there weren't as much politics um it was an outer city hospital not an inner city hospital and um yes um a midwife was there and um was very gentle and um it was um, a completely different experience yeah yeah I think a lot of the women I've spoken to who have had birth trauma during their first experience and be it you know obstetrician or, or midwife and vaginal birth or caesar it doesn't particularly matter but a lot of the women have who were brave enough to have a second birth a second child um, did find that process quite cathartic because it was very different to the first I don't know well I yes I agree I yeah no I interviewed women that said exactly the same you're correct yeah. And for me personally, um, yes, that was uh, unknowingly. I, I, I wanted another baby despite having prolapses. Um, mm. But, yes, it was, it was a healing experience. I mean, a lot of women after having traumatic births want to have seizures, and that's fine too. Mm. Um, yeah. But I, I don't think I really, um, I don't know, I didn't even think of that. And I had very supportive midwives and very supportive doctors. So, wonderful. You know, that was good. Yeah, and, you know, a lot of um, questions I get asked, it's probably one of the most frequent questions from the book, is that how did you, A, carry a a second baby with a prolapse like yours um, to full term, and then, B, how did you birth it vaginally because didn't the prolapse kind of block the opening? And they're all the things that um, we had to process throughout the pregnancy was that was my number one fear. Like if the baby is sitting on top and the blood is, blocking the hole or the vaginal wall how is it going to come out <laughs> do you know what I mean and I think that was it's a it's a big real fear. well that was that was certainly something that I asked um the doctor at the time mm. um although I was a midwife I wasn't a researcher at the time mm-hmm. and I suppose I had a mother hat on yes. um and he said that during um the second trimester that the the whole area would lift up 
Mm. And he was correct. Um, it, it did. Uh, mm. And I felt um, a whole lot better. Isn't that remarkable, right? So that uh, the same thing was said to me. And in that second trimester, you feel less symptomatic. And I'm like, wow, if I could only be second trimester pregnant for the rest of my life. All that time, exactly. And then after the delivery, it all started. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, look. Um, so when did, at what point did you know that helping others in this birth trauma space was your calling? Uh <laughs> Okay, I um, I suppose it was when I was teaching nurses um, and I was aware that nurses weren't often very aware of these uh, terrible uh, disabilities to women. Mm-hmm. Um, I was working at a major university as a lecturer um, only at the beginning, it's only, you know, 15 or so years ago and I I noticed that they really didn't understand and I had to do a a PhD to stay in that job as a a lecturer so um, I and during my master's of education degree I presented a a paper to a whole lot of academics in a huge boardroom on postnatal care and how inadequate it was for women yes and they a lot of these people weren't midwives some were but they were so overwhelmed with this paper that I presented, I thought, okay, and I entitled it, Congratulations, You're a Mother, Your Life's Never Going to Be the Same Again. And it it really impacted me just giving that and watching their faces Mm. and how how they realised after it that women don't really get a lot of postnatal care and often people that have birth damage and because I'd had birth damage, I was able to integrate that and, and because I'd seen a lot of, terrible birth so from that point on I made um, a a distinct um, decision to try and seek out someone to be a supervisor to do research to then give a voice to women okay because you have um, that lived experience of not having a voice and not having that support right Exactly. I had, um, yes, I had no voice and, um, and, you know, I used to have to go to work as a nurse and um, I couldn't explain to nursing staff often I did casual shifts that I couldn't lift. I remember I did mention to one particular um, male supervisor that I couldn't um, lift because I had prolapses and he made fun of me um, and I burst into tears. And I remember thinking um, this has got to change. So I started talking to doctors and I was surprised that there were some really lovely doctors out there. Um, I was um, underwhelmed by others. Um, yes, of course. And But on the whole, I think the healthcare team really does try to work and, together and, and, and give good outcomes. And it's a very stressful environment. And having been a, a trauma nurse, I knew that. Yes. Uh, I found... Um, when I first started, I finished my master's and I was still teaching. And then I went back into um, the clinical environment um, at a big major hospital working in all areas. Um, yeah. And I started my PhD with um, a professor who was well known for working with um, birth injuries. And yes. it strangely appeared that there wasn't too many of these people around, which I, know. I was... and. And this person worked with um, imaging and ultrasound. And there was another person in America um, that worked with MRI. 
So, so I was strangely surprised. Yes, yeah, few and far between considering that we're talking about statistics of one in two women living with pelvic organ prolapse. And we have, here we go, two professors, one in Australia and one in America. It's a bit unreal, isn't it? <laughs> it was very, very surreal. The rest of them didn't seem to know. The one I worked with was excellent. And I thank him greatly because he, he, he um, showed me imaging. He explained the history of it. Yes. We under, uh, I under, and then I read articles, um, of some of his, some of others, of men that had looked at this in, um, back in the 1890s wow. um, without imaging. Um, a guy called Robert Dickinson, he, he discovered a muscle called the levator ani muscle back in the 1890s. And then there was, um, there was a couple in the early 20th century up until the 1950s, and then the medical profession forgot they, they forgot, forgot about it. <laughs> uh, they, they thought it was interesting research, but it wasn't until this professor showed me in um, the early 20th century and the one in America or their research mm-hmm. on imaging that they proved these other guys were correct. And wow. this muscle that um, was torn off the pubic bone during delivery that yes. was shown back by Robert Dickinson in 1890s um, was was an actual fact, and that's why women had prolapses for thousands of years and had to use pessaries such as pomegranates and wool and exactly. all of these, you know, things that I've learned about terrible, history. terrible yeah. things. Yeah. And the the beauty of this professor that I worked with, he was always um, thinking outside the square, a bit like um, working with Victor Chang. Yes. And I believe um, he um, he wanted to change. He wants to change things. He wants people to look at the fact that this does not have to happen to everybody. Yes. And that he showed that forceps um, were a really big issue. And having seen multiple forceps um, during my time as a midwife, and most midwives don't like forceps. They really don't at all. Okay. Um, yeah, especially those keelans that rotate the baby and that rips the that was the, me. The levator and yeah, yeah, exactly. That was me. That was me also. When babies are posterior and they're turning them. That's right. Wouldn't and it be it, amazing? It, oh, sorry, Liz, you go. No, no, keep going. That's fine. I was going to say, wouldn't it be amazing if somehow there could be some some type of imaging done? Uh, just as you're going into labor to see if the baby's posterior or not. Now, I was told by another midwife that, ba- that midwives should know if a baby's posterior, but how can they know if it's in the canal posterior? Like, how do you know? I, I don't well, know. Well, they, they that. <laughs> you can, you can palpate it and you can, you always, um, having worked extensively in antenatal clinics, mm-hmm. um, you palpate it and you can feel it's posterior. Um, there's, there's, a, um, discussion out there at one stage back in uh, about 20 30 years ago they the people did um some form of um imaging to see if they were posterior and they i i actually worked in um it was crown street actually oh, which isn't there. there anymore i was born there yeah well I'm, <laughs> i had to do three months there um during my my general training so yes a, a very um well-known hospital um with lots of really good research um and they did, they used to do imaging and then they would send the person to um, a cesarean section. 
and I think, um, and I wondered, I, I, I wondered, I, you are correct, why we cannot mm-hmm. do that now. Women listening now who have not had a baby or had a baby and no issues wouldn't quite understand and they couldn't understand that childbirth is so political and you've got these two camps and I talk about it in the book, the obstetric camp and the natural birth advocate camp, both have really strong standpoints but I do feel disappointingly that they do try and convince the other that theirs is better, that their method is better. And And do you know what? You know what, Steph, um, during my PhD, I was so irritated by that and I have been constantly irritated by that as a midwife yes. because I'm a, I'm a trauma nurse. I want to work with a good team. I don't, I don't like that at all. So I went back into the history and I found out that the natural birthing method that was started in the 1920s and 30s was started by a man in Britain right. who was, I don't know whether you know this, who was um, post-war in the, it was, his name was um, Reed, Dr. Reed, hmm. Dick Reed, and they called it the Dick Reed method. And he was an obstetrician who was working, I know, who was working for the government to, um, to lessen costs after the war, World War I. Oh. Because they did, and the same in Russia, they did hypnotherapy with women because they couldn't afford to give women um general anesthetics um any anesthetics and so the the natural birthing method was started by men and health reformers (laughs) and um somehow along the line women picked it up in the 1970s and said um we have our own bodies but they forgot to look at the fact that yes we have our own bodies but everybody has a different body and a different baby and a different birth, a way to birth, a different vagina, different hip structure. Yes, absolutely. Oh my gosh. So I think I think natural birthers would be shocked to know that natural birthing was started in the 20th century by, by a male obstetrician. Absolutely. I had no idea, Liz. I had no idea that happened. I've only, you know, kind of watched birth wars on SBS when you've got professors and heads of midwifery. I know, I know. Not I know. loving each other and as a mum, so as an advocate for mums, my one wish is that they could just use their amazing skill and love of midwifery um, and I agree. for women with a little bit of, hey, but this could happen in the medical field, you know, and, and work together. That's well, that's that's why my benchmark is Victor Chang always, because that's what Victor Chang and his team at St Vincent's did. They we always worked together. Now we weren't perfect and we had difficult yeah. times, but we work together to get good outcomes. So the, um, the nursing staff, the physiotherapy staff, the doctors, the, the people on the machines, the tech staff, we all work together. And he is my benchmark. And I yeah. came into obstetrics and maternity um, hoping for that to occur. And I still want that to occur. So I will, will always advocate for teamwork, uh, advocate for teamwork. Having that multidisciplinary team. And I think um yeah for women who are either pregnant or becoming pregnant they just need to do a bit more research just do a little bit more searching ladies because once you kind of see it for what it is I think that's the only way you can make an informed decision I read a lot of um pregnancy and birthing books now more so even when before I was pregnant 
and the messaging is very much vaginal birth and natural birth and no pain medication like it's still being heavily um told and sold as i would say as, as i got in my childbirth education um and when women are presented only with one method they think well that's it that's what you do but ladies there's another half of the textbook that it's worth reading before making your decision i totally agree steph um that women should do their research but i suppose i'm an advocate for all women and mm. i think that there's a lot of women that um have unexpected births like they're they're yeah. um, they fall pregnant quite quickly like i did yes and um coming from my perspective i uh, although i was um you know i wasn't young young i was in my late 20s i still hadn't expected to fall pregnant that quickly um and my husband i did not know my husband as well as maybe some people might know for five years um and yeah uh, it all all of a sudden i was a career person one minute and the next minute i was pregnant so the time Um, yeah the timing, but also the fact is if I was a, a poorer person and I'd fallen pregnant, having worked in community as a child and family nurse um, and I was 16, mm. um, what does a 16-year-old know? Exactly. Nothing. Yeah. And so I think it, um, the reason I've um, started a business recently on, on health literacy is to help all people because I think Love all that. people need to be given access to this information so that they can make informed decisions. And this is underpinned by World Health Organization yes. strategies of health literacy. So a 16-year-old person um, who falls pregnant, whatever area, state, country, mm-hmm. should know as much as a 35, 40-year-old who is a health professional, not just um, a health system for um, rich people, if you like, or private people. I love that. And it- it's funny that you said that because even when you said at 35 when I first fell pregnant, even though I read all the books that I thought that I needed to read, I still was very uneducated, even though I'm an educated woman. So I see your point that it's actually not the onus of the pregnant woman. The onus should no. be on the people supporting them to present this Absolutely. information in a non-biased Absolutely. way, right? Okay, that's my modus operandi to go into workplaces to speak to people like you and say that we as health professionals need to help uh, with health Mm -hmm. literacy. We need to to direct and show so that then people can make informed decisions. Because how can you make informed decisions if you don't have correct information information? (laughs) or any information? So, (laughs) the one thing I just want to make. Um, a point about here is something that you may not be on your list of questions is men Um, I'm not sure whether you were going to bring that up but um, I'm also during my PhD I interviewed men yes and the shock of um, all the things that happened to their partners Mm. was the fact that they had no health literacy men felt an encumbrance in labor ward they felt an encumbrance afterwards. And then every time they opened their mouth, they were fearful that they they might have been named a misogynist. Or say the um, wrong thing, do the wrong thing. Or say the wrong thing. And so when they talked to me, I was lucky enough to, um, that's um, one of the reasons the Birth Trauma Association um, 
was begun because of these very brave um, women and men that Mm -hmm. I spoke to. So I was very lucky to talk to these men. They were really very caring of their their partners. And it was, um, yeah, their partners that had severe injury, but they were in the dark. They Mm -hmm. didn't understand what a prolapse was. Why do we expect men to be um, health literate if we haven't told them? We ask them to come into Labor Ward. We ask them to watch things that most um, health professionals um, struggle with also and then we say go home and have a good life and support your, and your know, person and support your person and they all said to me I'm so glad I'm speaking to you I have looked on the internet I have spoken to other men I have asked health professionals and no one wants to tell me it's no. silence there is no health literacy for us yeah. we are an unidentified population and, Absolutely. you know, I will fight for these men and I will, because that's when you get marriage breakdown because then the okay. husband thinks, what, what is failed. going on here? I failed. The wife thinks you're just a misogynist. Um, you let me down and nobody's speaking. Yeah. So I don't, know, I don't know whether that's helping you, but I'm very passionate about this. Yeah, and I do want to follow up on that because I know what we were, we, I really wanted to unpack because you have done so much work and so much time and passion into researching birth trauma in particular. Um, and I know the Australian Birth Trauma Association was really the birth of your research and those 40 women and seven men that you've mentioned who were brave enough to tell their story in the first place. Did you see any common connections between... Um, you know, the births and the injuries that you, from those people that you spoke to? What do you mean common connections? So was there, uh, so I'll ask in a different way. So is it, were there, were there forceps used in those 40 births? Oh, yes. Okay. Yes, a high proportion of um, forceps used in those um, 40 births. Yeah, high proportion. Um, Yes, it's published um, at Sydney University Library. Um, and there's there's international papers on this with huge citations on my on my writing, okay. um, and a lot of people now are looking at it. When I first did it, because it was qualita- uh, mixed methods mm-hmm. with um, an emphasis on qualitative, um, some of the medical profession, the doctors, were not happy to read it because they're quantitative and they only wanted to look at figures. Black and white. Um, but- <laughs> Black and white. But um, we now know in the 21st century that qualitative and interviews are the, the, the way forward. We need to find out what people are thinking. We need to find out why things happened, yeah. what went wrong, how it went wrong. Um, and these people were so brave and that's what they did. And so I'm so very thankful. And that was the um, genesis of the uh, Australasian Birth Trauma Association and the genesis now of my business to yes. do health literacy but um yes it always it didn't go always that well for those people that's why they are so brave because yeah. um some of their their um yeah their outcomes weren't very good but i must point out that um the 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 research showed that the people that actually turned up together the husband and wife to yeah. talk to the urogynecologist showed that their sex life was much better and their um their trauma, which was a finding of my PhD, the PTSD that came from the injuries was decreased. And mm. um, the, when they went to talk to, the, to this um, um, professor that um, helped, was part of the team, yes. he explained all this and he unpacked all of this and 
uh, uh, one particular couple said that finally somebody answered our questions. Awesome. And our, our, my wife, the husband said my wife's PTSD decreased and our sex life despite the injuries has um, improved and our communication has improved. Wow. That is so impactful. I just want to sit with that for a second because that's huge. That keep, Absolutely know, huge. Obviously living. And that's called health literacy. Uh-huh. <clears throat> okay. That's what you yeah, are, right. Having, so that um, professor was using health literacy, which is what I want to carry the torch yes. and, and take that forward because that was his passion, health literacy, although he wouldn't have called it that. Okay. Yeah, right. Doing wonderful things and not even really knowing, yeah, but potentially. Um, I, yeah. Having had, obviously, my partner's lived through this too. My husband's gone through this traumatic birth and the injuries as well. Um, and I think that's another question is, well, how did you go and have a second baby? Not, not only how did you carry the baby, how did you birth the baby, but how do you have sex with prolapse? Do you mind if we get into the nitty gritty of sex and prolapse? Because a lot of women living with pelvic organ prolapse, their sex life, and like I have said, has never been the same. And I, I was chatting with a lady yesterday who said she was a midwife and she said, when they cut an episiotomy, they've only just worked out that when they cut the episiotomy, they cut some nerves to your clitoris. And so therefore your sex life can actually never be the same. And I was like, what? Really? Oh my God. I never knew that. I thought it was up there and they cut down there. And she said, no, because the research that came out um, a few years ago shows that the shape of the clitoris and the muscles are much bigger than what they ever thought. So we're constantly learning about our own anatomy every day, right? Right. Yes. Um, that, um, that I'm not, not a favor with that. It sounds very interesting. I know about the clitoris, but I do know from having worked in labor wards and having seen very um, violent births that I've seen clitoral tears. Yes. Um, in, and one particular facility, I seem to see them. And often it was due to women in certain positions. Okay. Um, standing positions. Um, Oh, right. It doesn't necessarily, everybody's saying that everyone's standing, but yes, I saw a lot of clitoral tears. Um, that research is certainly very interesting. Yeah, that is, that is very worrying um, so, uh, because I'm having worked with female genital mutilation at one particular hospital with women that um, were yeah. um, delivering, I'm, I'm very au fait with clitoral because the clitoris is removed. So, yes. um, and most of these women from overseas will say that, you know, they don't know what an orgasm is. So, because, um, yeah, yeah. they've never had it. It's like that they've female circumcision, isn't it? Well, that's what they that, call that's it. That's right. We know it's, yeah, it's not. Yeah, um, well, it's banned in Australia. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, how do you have um, sex with a, um, a prolapse? Well, um, once again, health literacy. Um, and trying to understand and trying to explain it to your partner. Um, And that's why I was using the example of that one couple who after speaking to um, a well-informed health professional, um, the urogynecologist, were then able to go home and and work it out themselves. And, okay, their sex life wasn't exactly the same as what um, it used to be. And there's a lot of people that say, well, I wish we could go back or we can't can't go back. You can still have intimacy in different ways. So even if you have pelvic organ prolapse, you and your partner can 
find intimacy in another way. Yes, you can. Um, but I think the, the big hurdle is health literacy. So if you've got no idea of what um, you're a, just a, you know, a person that works in retail or works in yep. high ec- um, energy economic forums, um, you've never heard of a prolapse. I mean, I have worked in, in private hospitals and I remember um, trying to explain what a midwife was. Um, a lot of them didn't even know what a midwife was. Oh, so wow. they're high high energy people that work in you know ceos in companies um we had we had big discussions so if you're one of those people or you just don't have any information you need to be well informed um i i'm i'm not saying it's going to be easy i'm not saying that at all um without uh, i don't know you want to go into the nitty-gritty when you use that word nitty-gritty what what do you want i think well i think uh for our listeners and lost you you. oh right oh oh, yeah Uh, I think for our listeners, potentially, so how would you even start the conversation with your loved one about your prolapse and how it's affecting your sex life? Because uh, Good question. Impossible. Yeah. It's oh. impossible. And, that, and that's what the research is showing. And yeah. that when I interviewed my 40 women, um, up to oh, it's probably about 50% of them asked me to speak to their partner. Yeah. They begged me to speak to their partner as they broke down. These were after, these were um, two years of interviews of women that were so distressed um, that they they felt like they kept on saying to me, there was this constant theme, I never imagined there would be this much of marital disharmony. And, And even trying to unpack that, I'd say, what does that mean? And where is that coming from? Yeah, it was always coming from sex. Yeah. And, um, and the people that didn't speak about it, they just couldn't speak about it. But so um, that pushed me forward to then speak to their partners okay. and, and find ah. out what was happening. Yes. So um, it's impossible because the man thinks that the woman doesn't love her anymore and the woman the rejection. Um, feels, well, the rejection definitely, and the woman feels that um, she's... Um, not lovable anymore she's dehumanized her body has become um a a bloated mess it's funny Um, you say uh, that because uh there was women who live with pelvic organ prolapse can often describe that the organs in the morning are are sitting okay because of gravity of lying down the night before but as the day progresses and as the organs descend down the vaginal canal Generally, if you have younger children at home, the only time you opportunity you have to be intimate is when they go to bed around seven or eight o'clock at night. So when your partner comes at you to become intimate, that's the worst time of the day. That's the most symptomatic. That's when you just need to be laying horizontal for 12 hours to get it back. So that's, it's probably one thing I've had to work through even with my own husband is to try and find the words to communicate that to him in a non-rejection way. But quite often you're so much in pain or you're so tired, you're just like, no, or you make an excuse or you, you know, that whole, oh, I've got a headache type rubbish. Um, But also women who I've, you know, obviously spoken to within our circle say that it's just too hard. They can feel things like their stool at the back passage. So when the penis penetrates they rub against each other and the man might not be able to feel that but the woman can oh my god who would want that 
you need to find a that way to That is an amazing, amazing description, Stefan. You are so brave in actually saying that description. Um, I had different people, but not many, saying similar things. But that's um, exactly, it's almost impossible to explain that yes. to your partner. But it is possible for someone like me or even you um, in the work that you're doing and urogynecologists to mm -hmm. explain that yeah. to a couple. Yes. And what you actually what you actually just said then, wouldn't that be wonderful if you were sitting <laughs> as the consultant mm -hmm. with the family, which yes. is the, the job that um, I do. Yes. Um, that's one of my hats as a consultant, and I'm hoping to put that out more and more. Yes. And you get much better results. Because yes. as I use that 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 couple, they felt that their sex life was a lot better. Now I don't know whether that um, urogynecologist used exactly those lovely the way you put that that would really like bring the couple together the, the the father the husband would say oh my goodness that's terrible yes I think anyone would I think anyone and so I think uh, from the women I've spoken to very privately obviously they say well sometimes if I know I want to give something to my partner I won't have a massive meal because then I don't feel the backup of stool and I'm not as, oh, I go and try and empty my bowel before going into the bedroom, which is so unromantic and non. It is. Know, and um, so you have, opened, you have um, highlighted an issue that was really difficult for me to ask women in the, mm -hmm. in the PhD. They would not answer that question. Now you're going forward with that because impacted bowels and prolapse are definite they go hand in hand and it's too embarrassing but once again someone like yourself and me and another health professional we can open this conversation and make them literate yes because quite often and then happy yeah and it's like that uh, old saying that I can tell my daughter to do something 10 times please pick up your toys please pick up your toys da 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 and they just hear mum's voice. But the minute the teacher jumps on online learning and says, Elsie, you need to read your book, she's like, oh, she That's listens. It. And I think she it's, listened. Yeah. it's the same with a partner. If it's coming from an external source and not your wife or not your partner. Exactly. I think the messaging, it can sink in a little bit better when it's someone and from that stance. men are crying out for that because they feel an encumbrance. Okay. Men, and women are asking for help too. Women are wanting mm. their partners to understand. Yes. But women can't do that. You can't expect a woman to do that. There needs to be a third person, I believe. I love that. Yes. I think we've just uh, <laughs> we've stumbled across something. And I hope that is helpful for women who can't start the conversation with their partner to say that your penis rubs on my poo and I don't like it. Um, they can just say, listen to this podcast because that's me. <laughs> just this is us. I think we have we have between us, um, yeah, the innovation of what you've just said has really that will impact a lot of people. Hopefully, this podcast. I hope. I yeah. hope. That's my hope. You know, and I think that gets us on to our last part is how do we better support women? You're doing an amazing job. I'm trying really hard. There's a lot, I think. The inertia of talking about prolapse and the taboo and shame is slowly dropping. Um, and I think we're getting better at it. But 
how can us women better support women when it comes to pelvic health? More so, I know what we're doing. I'm talking about our listeners. What can our listeners be doing to better support themselves and other women in pelvic health? This is a question on um, exercises, is it? On Kegels um, and things. No I'm, not, I'm not also sure where you're going. How do we have the conversations even with our trusted circle? So how can we, so for example, you and I can talk very openly about this, but once upon a time, I couldn't talk to my own sister about it until I wrote a book about it because I didn't have the words to say. So, um, you know, like if you, I know in a circle of mothers groups, there's probably two of them that have a prolapse, but can't talk about it. As someone oh, How do we allow them to talk? Yes, yes. How do we help women in being able to say hey I've got this thing I think it it, I don't know what it is you know my in my vagina I don't know you know what I mean I think our mother's groups are the way to 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 move forward in our circle of friends and women I think I think yes the mother's groups are always very powerful mother's groups are very powerful but once again it needs to come from health professionals it needs to be a fact sheet. It needs to be something that you pick up in the antenatal classes or yes. the postnatal. Um, yes. I'd like to see postnatal classes. Yes. Um, I, I know that governments um, may not be very happy and especially not at the moment, but I'd like to see um, maybe dialogues in, um, in community centres. I think that's the place where you need it. Having worked in community yes. with um, mothers and babies, I think, um, and everyone goes to the baby health centre to have their baby weighed. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and I think that, um, well, the one centre I worked in, we used to have um, different um, information uh, um, drops, if you like. Mm-hmm. So I think that is um, a facility that, that could open up this conversation and then mums can go and have a cup of coffee and then they can say, well, you know what the nurse was saying this morning? Um, I've got that. That's how it it needs to always come from the health professional. You can't expect um, mothers. Mothers are amazing people. Yeah, I hear you. I love that. And because I remember going, like every Friday we went to the clinic, we all weighed the babies. And I think we did that for six weeks. And then every Friday there was a session or something like teething, breastfeeding. One of them could be definitely about prolapse because even if you don't have prolapse at birth through forceps and damage, you can most certainly have prolapse stage one, two or whatever after you finish breastfeeding and you don't even know it. Exactly. And then the idea is to refer them for imaging yes. to see what the treatment options are because they're, they're the, the issues and to see what help they can get and get good help yes. Not and have a pool of good resources, yes. not bad resources and not referred to um, technicians that don't really understand what they're doing. Yeah, that happens a lot. And women get frustrated by that. Um, would you consider Liz for pelvic organ pro- prolapse to be a disability? He's a can Definitely. of worms. <laughs> I don't think it's a can of worms. I think it's a very, um, yeah, uh, but it's, um, I, I hear what you're saying. I think most women don't like to see themselves as having a disability mm-hmm. because it's um, uncomfortable. You want to be a sexual being. You yeah. want to be um, um, normal. 
You don't and, want the yeah. thought of something protruding from your vagina. Um, but, yes, it is a disability. You can't go to rock concerts and stand up and dance. Um, you can't run. You can't, you can't pick um, up your kids. walk. You yeah. can't pick up your kids. You can't work as um, an intensive care nurse. Yeah, a lot of women weigh themselves. You have to change your job. Yes, you Absolutely. lose your career. And so it's, it's, it's so It's a disability. Yeah, and I think... Um, and I have talked about this on other episodes, it obviously also depends on the grade and type. A lot of women hate the grading because one day you feel like you could be a grade two or three and the next day you feel like you're a four. Like it's, it, I think it's very fluid. It's not quite linear, but anything by definition that stops you from um, living your normal life. And I hate using the word normal because I don't ever want to offend the community of people with disabilities either as if it's a versus thing that's just the terminology I think we've been brought up with and that we know if there's please tell me if anyone's listening and there's a better way to say it tell me and I'm all for it um but I think that women anything that they say by definition stops you from doing your normal activities for longer than six months is by definition classed as a disability here in Australia absolutely and these and prolapses are long-term issues unless you get miraculous surgery. And, yes. Um, those, or, those surgeries are few and far between. And for those women who are perhaps a stage one and can't feel it or a stage two and can have intensive physiotherapy or regular physiotherapy to improve it to a number one and then their life does carry on as if they didn't have the prolapse. So that's very different. We're talking about a disability for women in that grade three, four area where they can no longer continue their career, can't walk to the letterbox without pain, can't pick up their children, uh, you know, pooing and weeing. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a travesty and it needs to be labelled as a disability. And it's funny because uh, I, I, yeah, I put the question out there even within our own community because I also don't want women to feel like they're labelled with anything if they don't want to. But... I think quite a few women said, well, if it meant that I could access better support for living with this, then I'm okay yes. with that. I'm not against being yeah, exactly. I don't care if people call me disabled, but because they can't see it, I think I'll be judged poorly by it. So, And I've had yes. those personal feelings creating that short film about called my invisible disability. I thought, ooh, as a child growing up, I saw disability somebody in a wheelchair because that's the, that's the symbol used on the car parking um, or someone who has a limb missing or they're deaf or blind or a chromosomal thing or, or an, from a car accident. I never saw it as something that happens in a birth injury that you can't see. So I think, am I? Am I disabled? I don't know. I don't care if I, that's what it is, but... You're just constantly questioning yourself because you think, well, other other people will say, well, you're not, because you can. Well, you're look. constantly hiding it. So I think yeah. you're constantly you trying to be um, a beautiful person, and you don't feel beautiful inside. Oh no. <laughs> Do you know one thing that really irks me, Liz? Here it is on social media. I mean, there's obviously a lot of things, but when I read posts saying you are not broken it's all in your mind and usually it's coming from like a physiotherapy natural birth advocate style of company or person saying that you know you can heal your prolapse and you just got to change your mindset I think come and live an hour in my body and tell me if you feel broken 
because I feel very broken every day. Exactly know. right. Exactly right. I'm trying and, and you feel like you don't want the facade anymore. No, and I'm trying immensely to be positive and find workarounds and do all these amazing tips and tricks and share them with the world. But at the end of the day, I still feel really broken. I still can't pick up my son when he's crying. That's shit. <laughs> so to Absolutely. Re yeah, to read things like that, I get really upset because it's, it's silencing us again, this unseen and unheard community, because it's just too hard to take it on, you know. Exactly right. And there needs to be more money and research um, put into this so that there can be better outcomes and better treatment options. Yes. Pessaries are, to me, um, very difficult. Oh, um, yeah. I can't wear them. With avulsions, um, I don't know. Many uh, with avulsions, have... bilateral avulsions, very unlikely that, and I know you'll hear people, but I've been, because I'm also an expert with UK Birth Trauma Association who have been the reason um, Birth Trauma Australia started. Uh, they started in 2003. Yes. Um, and Canada started in 1999. Um, I, I'm sent women who are very distressed. And I've recently been speaking to a woman in um, Scotland who um, tried every pessary under the sun with a bilateral avulsion and, um, you know, her marriage broke up. There was domestic uh -huh. violence involved. Um, it was, um, it, you see, these are all the hidden issues. Horrific. And so, I mean, I, I will continually follow up this woman and so will UK birth trauma and we'll try and get her much more help. But she's mm. a very, very brave woman, but pessaries are not her answer. No. She, she definitely needs... And I'll, I'll venture into this some form of surgery. And um, because I'm in connection with um, IUGA and ICS, which is the International Urogynecology Association and International Continence Association, um, there is a bank of really good doctors. Now, this surgery may not be absolutely perfect, but there needs to be in some of these situations more than you may think a form of surgery that will get people some quality of life back. And now mm. I'm speaking like Victor Chang again because <laughs> Victor, Victor Chang would always say that. Uh, we are always looking at quality of life, Liz. Something better. And something better. Mm. And, okay, cardiac operations um, may not have lasted as well for some, but they got quality of life. And I thank him so much for that because I'm speaking to you now all these years later and saying that women, that woman in Scotland, um, we have found someone for her Wonderful. and she will get some form of surgery, but that's thousands of miles away and they're speaking to me in Australia. That's wonderful. Um, there's very few people, but there's more of us, um, and you're one of them, who can help these people. So, yeah. I hope. That, that's, that's why I do what I do. So there's obviously two-pronged approaches that I want to be able to help others and um, with education and information and support. But then, two, it actually keeps me going. I could no longer continue my career in 20 years of education because I can't stand or walk without being in pain for too long. And as a teacher, that's just not practical. Although funny enough, I could have done it now while in lockdown because everyone's online. But you, well, you already are a teacher. You are teaching and you are doing health literacy 
you that's what you're doing now you've just yeah. changed the area that you're doing topics yeah so thanks Liz <laughs> I think we need to as mothers often we we use all these different skills just in different ways mm, that's so true that is so so true but you're not a mother anymore you're a you're an educationist <laughs> that's how I, I see you. <laughs> that's lovely. That's really, and I, and I want to continue doing what I do and making sure that by the time it comes around for Elsie to have, you know, her babies or actually, you know what? That's silly. From now, she's five. I now want to start educating her about her anatomy. So knowing that her vulva is different from her vagina and they do different things and knowing that her pelvic floor muscles are really important to look after as a as a young woman and as a teenager before she gets to birth so things like looking at chronic constipation or coughing or diet and exercise are all part of the puzzle that childbirth isn't the only thing that can damage your, your pelvic floor that it's actually it's encompassing of a healthy lifestyle from very young and i think by teaching her those skills now that's I can only hope it's going to lead to better outcomes for her. You can't avoid prolapse. I understand that with, you know, uh, menopause and hormonal changes and a whole lot of other aspects. But I think I knew nothing. I didn't even know what my pelvic floor was. I heard about Kegels um, and pulling up. But I think uh, the thing about menopause, I think, is, um, yes, it does increase the prolapse, but the prolapse will be there in the first place. And I think that was what I learned from my research. Uh -huh. That um, a lot of women are, I, I agree with you, you know, I think, um, you know, uh, whatever way um, children are taught in um, anatomy and physiology, biology, mm -hmm. um, yeah, they, they, it, that's important to their lifestyle, eating, drinking, um, ensuring bowel habits are correct. I agree. Um, but I think um, there's a few myths out there about like prolapses, um, only occur to menopausal women yeah that's the they old only school thought, isn't it that mm. you only get it after you've gone through menopause they only occur to fat people they only occur with um and and there's a whole list of things that it's old hat stuff really yeah. um i i interviewed 21 year olds that had severe severe prolapses hmm. um and women will try and um listen to all this or they, they're forced to listen to this stuff it's wrong teaching and it's wrong yeah. okay so yes uh, menopause does exacerbate a hidden prolapse and I think urogynecologists will uh, hidden when I say occult or not as severe it will exacerbate it because the hormones but um it not to be you know a 21 year old doesn't need to hear um you're too fat or you're yeah. this you've caused um, it yeah yeah, yeah. Thank yeah. you for pointing that out because, yeah, I, I'm constantly learning along the way. There's so much, it's so complex, isn't it? Our, our bodies are so complex. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and I think um, for centuries, and that's why I'm so interested in the history of all this, for centuries um, women have been putting up with this and it really mm -hmm. wasn't until these two great professors, the one in Australia and the one in America, um, showed on imaging what the men um and they were mainly men, they weren't women, in the, in the 20th century and late 19th century had um, discovered the levator ani. Yeah. And you will speak to hospitals um, today and you will find there are no evidence-based guidelines on levator ani. 
um, I'm giving a presentation um, to um, some people very soon on complementary medicine who want to know um, more about this stuff. So okay. we need to put that to help their patients because their patients are coming to them and saying, I've got this strange injury and they want to know how to explain it to them. So Good. I think the more we give, once again, health literacy, um, and we thank those two professors um, for um, um, putting that research out there and, mm. and we need to run with that because women have suffered this stuff for too long. Yeah, it's enough is enough, isn't it, really? And it's wonderful that, you know, I've been talking to women um, on the podcast that uh, technology is coming a long way and pessaries will change. We will finally see a change in the shape and form that they've done. But wouldn't it be better to try and work before the problem rather than the solution, working out what Oh, happens? you mean prevention? Prevention. Prevention. Yeah, rather than the solution. Absolutely. Would... Yes, there is more work with pessaries and our physio friends will definitely say that for some women, that's a, a really good um, answer. Mm -hmm. But yes, wouldn't it be nice that mm -hmm. we could um, we could decrease the use of forceps? Um, I'm not saying that forceps um, forceps save babies' lives. They they saved my son's life. Yeah. Um, but um, forceps um, uh, and there's nothing. And my my colleague in Canada who um, runs an organisation called Choosing Cesarean Section. Mm -hmm. um, there are some women that really do need to have cesarean sections. Mm. Um, yeah. And um, she's worked beautifully with um, Britain and she's changed guidelines to make it uh, um, possible for people to choose cesarean sections. Should be. Um, and yeah. in this day and age, cesarean sections are very safe mm. um, in developed countries. We, of course, we need to look at the, the side effects of all things, but um, I'm Good. sure a lot of people would prefer a cesarean section than a lifetime of prolapses and yes. fecal in, um, and incompetence. Yeah, that's and, right. Or incontinence and, yeah. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Anyone who, and hindsight's a wonderful thing. And I think I wish I would have even had an option. There was never an option for me. The cesarean section was not even allowed to be talked about in my natural birthing um, exactly right. And that's public health in Australia, whereas in Britain, um, this woman has changed the NICE guidelines. It doesn't always happen, but mm. it's been changed, the national guidelines, that is, to yes. get women um, um, choices, give women choices. Yeah, that's right. So lastly, I just want to ask, Liz, what would be your big, your big hope for this picture in, you know, birth trauma and pelvic health for women? Health literacy, definite health literacy underpinned by World Health Organization, whether it's discussing like we were about really fragile situations about sexual issues, like you pointed out so vividly, um, health professionals having more education to impart and give people access to care and problem solving, health literacy. Wonderful. Now, if someone's listening today and would like to find out more about what you're doing in your business now, where could they yes. find you? What's the best way to contact you? Okay. Um, it's Birth Trauma Consultancy. Um, I um, just Google it, Birth Trauma yeah. Consultancy, Elizabeth Skinner. You can just Google it. And Elizabeth there's a whole page there. Um, yeah. Beautiful. A, a web page and, and I, I'm there to do um, work with health professionals yes. and with mums and dads Beautiful. and um, 
dads by themselves or mums or yes. partners. So yeah. that's for partners, partners too, right? We're not talking about just definitely and dad right. families. It's yeah, all absolutely. family inclusive. Beautiful. Okay. Yes. And I think we'll add your link to the show notes down the bottom so people can find you directly, but it's just nice to know how they can work with you and what support you can give. And I would um, definitely recommend anyone to go and check out your website and you're doing an amazing job. Thank you so much for all you do in this birth trauma space and we look forward to seeing what comes next. Yes, and working together. Fantastic. And thank you for all the brave and amazing work that you do with your site. And it thank really you. is brave. So. <laughs> thank you, Liz. It's been great to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thank you. What an episode, jam-packed full of goodness, right? I'm sure that with women like Liz around, we will be able to be and see the change that we need for our future girls. Now, I know last week we talked about asking you to head over to iTunes and leave a review. And thankfully, one of our beautiful listeners reached out and said that they really weren't sure how to do it exactly. So we've created a really short clip to help guide you through this process because we value your time and your energy and we don't want to make it hard. So if you're part of the Brave Mumblehood already, this would be would have been sent to you via email. And if you are not yet part of the community, you can sign up through the website or you can just send us a message and we'll email it straight to you without having to sign up to the Brave Mumblehood. All right, really exciting. Next week, we are interviewing Sarah Prime. Now, we talked to her in a two-part series here. Next week's interview is her pre-surgery chat about prolapse and then what her expectations are of the surgery she's about to have. And then our follow-up interview is going through what her surgery was like and where she's up to now. So until then, tune in and bye for now. Brave, my-